We're gonna get to we're gonna get to part two of our series, just you and me. Uh, last week we started this off, we kicked this off, and what we're really trying to accomplish is we're 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 wanting to recapture a vision for a God who is not just out there somewhere, but for a God who wants to be right here every single day, to have personal relationship with the God of the universe individual connection with his creation. I want to experience a revived relationship with the Lord. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I, if, you, if we read our Bibles, specifically in Revelation chapter 3, and we see the, the seven messages to the seven churches, apparently the last church, the last description of God's people here on earth, has in it, as part of its, its heart message, there's this idea, not just that they're lukewarm, but there's an idea that they've lost sight of Jesus being personally intimate with them. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It's a picture of Jesus. He's standing at the door and He's doing what? He's knocking, right? He's knocking at the hard door, which tells you that in relation to this church at the end of time, Jesus is outside. That's bothersome to me. But I believe God wants to be inside. Have personal relationship, personal communion. And what I, I believe that starts with day by day spending time with the Lord. So that's what this, this series is all about, Just You and Me. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. Uh, you know, we could look through all throughout Scripture to find one-on-one encounters between God and individuals. But I believe, at least for me, Mark chapter 5 puts some things in living color for me. And so we're going to go there again. Mark chapter 5 is where we were last week in the first story of Mark 5. We're going to go to Mark 5 starting starting in verse 21 today. Mark 5, verse 21. Before we even begin to read, let's bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, today, um, once again, we are, we're just grateful to be alive. We're grateful to have breath in our lungs. And we're grateful to have another opportunity to gather, not just in a building, but to gather in your presence. You've invited us to come, to take up uh, your yoke and to rest. You've invited us to come and to know you. And Lord, we want to invite you to come into our hearts. We're asking God that as we open up the Bible, that you would open up our hearts to hear from you today. To not just hear nice ideas, but to hear a living message from your living word through the Holy Spirit. So please, Lord, if there are other burdens that we're carrying on our hearts today, if there are other concerns and and, uh, ways that our attention may be divided and, and misplaced, we're just asking that you would do a miracle to draw us close to Jesus. Because we pray in His saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. All right. All right, we're going to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. This may be a story that you've heard before or read before. Now, just remember a little bit of context here. Jesus has come to one side of the lake. He has healed a demoniac of a legion of demons. Those demons have rushed um, 2,000 swine, 2,000 pig off of a cliff and into the sea. And because of that, the people of that town are fearful. They ask Jesus to leave. So Jesus has just been shooed away, so to speak, by a large multitude. But in verse 21, he gets to the other side. And the Bible says this, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, 
a great multitude gathered to him. And this is just another example of Jesus, the greatest magnet on earth, okay? This is Jesus, wherever he goes, people want to be with him. There's something about who Jesus is that you cannot resist his love. And the rest of verse 21 says, And he was by the sea. And in verse 22, the story continues. Behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now you'll remember that Mark has a way of telling stories that are very snappy, very instant and immediate. In fact, I think that's probably the most common word in Mark's gospel, immediately. Uh, But in Mark chapter 5, right kind of here in this section, Mark is actually stretching out his stories and adding a lot of detail for us to pay attention to. And so we're going to go at a snail's pace through this story, and I hope that, that, uh, that the Spirit can speak to us through some of these things. Now, according to verse 22, who is this man that comes to Jesus? Synagogue. Say it again. Synagogue. A synagogue official. My Bible says ruler of the synagogue. Okay, yeah, very specific description. Uh, this man is identified by his title, by his role, but he's also identified by something else. What is it? His name, yeah? And his name is Jairus. I don't know, maybe... I've heard different pronunciations, but I'm just going to stick with Jairus because that's what I'm comfortable with. So Jairus by name, really interesting. In Mark chapter 5, this is the only other person that has a name. Uh, besides Jesus. Okay, we'll say that. Besides Jesus, this is the only person that has a name. Jairus by name. Apparently, this man was of note. He is noteworthy. I mean, you think about the people that you meet on a day-to-day basis, especially in big crowds, like Jesus was in all the time, and you're not going to catch everyone's names. But those people that stand out, those people that you've had a personal interaction with, somehow or another, Mark knows this guy. Somehow or another, this man is well-known. And I think it has something to do, Brian, like with what you said. He's identified by his role. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's an official of the synagogue. I don't know if, if we want to kind of compare it to terms that we might be familiar with. Uh, you could say he's a, he's a spiritual leader. He's a head elder. He's someone who's coordinating worship for the Jewish community there on a week-to-week basis. So he's someone who has spiritual influence. He has responsibility for the spiritual growth of the community. No wonder he's mentioned by name. Because people know that when they have needs, they go to Jairus. But in this situation... Jairus has a need. And who does he go to? He goes to Jesus. He goes to Jesus. That's what I love about this. In verse 22, apparently this need that he has is very serious because at the end of verse 22 it says, When he saw him, he did what? He fell at his feet. The rest of the verse in in verse 23, And begged him earnestly saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. I don't know how many of us have ever had an experience where one of our children, one of our flesh and bone, is at the point of death. And that's, that's a pretty extreme scenario. Maybe you've had kids who have been seriously injured, seriously hurt, or you're, you're concerned for their well-being in one fashion or form. But this individual, he loves his daughter. Jairus loves his daughter, and he is desperate for help. 
This is a serious need, and though he is in a position of leadership and authority, he is not ashamed to show just how desperate he is, right? He falls at his feet. He begs him earnestly. And this serious need, this urgent need, uh, it motivates a very serious and specific request. Did you notice in verse 23, what is the specific request of Jairus? What is it? Yeah, lay your hands on her. Come, come to my house. Come into my immediate presence, the circle of my most intimate uh, interactions. Come there and lay your hands on her. In other words, do you know what he's asking? He's asking for a personal audience with Jesus. He's asking for individual attention from the King of creation. He's asking for one-on-one time with the Lord. Do you follow? Yes or no? Yeah? That's what he's asking. He's asking not just that Jesus would heal the masses. He's asking that Jesus would come to his house. He's asking what Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 is wanting us to ask. That Jesus would come in. Do you hear it? Yeah? He's asking for a personal encounter. And how does Jesus respond? He said, no, no, I've got a great multitude here. Can't do that right now. No. He goes with, right? Beginning of verse 24. So Jesus went with him. I just want to let that sink in for a little bit. When you desire personal one-on-one time with the Lord, Jesus loves to hear that. He is not bothered by it. He doesn't have other things to do. I mean, obviously he does have other things to do. But he's, he's prioritizing your individual time with him. And sometimes I think the question is more, are we prioritizing that time too? In this situation, Jairus is driven by a need. Jesus is moved toward us when we are moved toward him. What is it? uh, James. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We don't ever have to wonder, oh man, if I want to know the Lord, will he want to know me? We don't ever have to wonder about that. Because in Revelation 3.20, He's already come to our door. He's already come to our shore, as we, as we read about last week in Mark chapter 5, 1-20. through 20. Jesus is moved toward us when we move toward Him. And even when we draw near, more out of personal demand than from relational desire. You know, I don't know if this ever happens to you. You know, your kids come to you only when they need something. Or maybe you've got kids that are already out of the house. They're already in college or they're already working and they never, they never call home unless they need some... No, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, was, I was that kid, actually. <laughs> My parents wouldn't hear from me for two or three weeks at a time until I needed some extra gas money or something like that. Anyways, um, here's the thing. Jesus, even when we are drawn to Him out of... Need and demand. Jesus is drawn to us. You know, last week we we looked at the demoniac's healing and we realized that Jesus is not afraid of our messiness. And here in this story, what I'm impressed with is that Jesus is not turned away by our neediness. Okay? No matter how much you need, no matter if you're wanting that one-on-one time, not so much because you just love Jesus, 
but because you just need Jesus, okay? Whatever the motivation, the fact that you're there, He wants to be there too. The fact that you're asking for Him to come, He wants to come. When you draw near to Jesus, He will draw near to you. I was reading, uh, you know, I read a psalm every morning just to kind of wake up my heart before I dive into other reading. And just yesterday I was reading Psalm 70. And it, Psalm 70 verse 5, it's a, it's a refrain that's actually repeated, I think, in, in Psalm 40 also. But David says, I am poor and needy. Oh, make haste to help me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, Lord, do not delay. Have you ever asked him those kinds of urgent requests? God, don't, don't. Don't delay. Just make haste. And sometimes Jesus makes haste slowly. I don't know if you've ever had. Anyways, He makes haste. He wants to. He's drawn. He's drawn to our distress. He's not turned off by our our neediness. Apparently, it's okay to seek personal connection with God, even in our desperation. I tell you what, it is better to acknowledge our desperate need than to pretend that it doesn't exist. I'll say it again. It's better to acknowledge our desperate need than to pretend that it doesn't exist. Okay, That's what Laodicea in Revelation 3 is really all about too. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, the next time we pick up this series because the very next story kind of touches on that very thing. Alright, back to verse 24. Mark chapter 5, verse 24. So Jesus went with him. Jesus wants to come in. He wants to come into our personal presence. He wants that individual time. But notice who else goes along with Jairus. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. This is not what Jairus asked for. (laughs) Jairus asked for personal time. Jairus asked that Jesus would be drawn away from the multitude so that he could have individual attention in his personal audience, in his familiar home circle. And at this point, interestingly enough, Mark puts a pause on this story, and Jairus' need is interrupted. Jairus' story of rescue, his hope of healing, it's put on pause. Because what happens is, according to this verse, in verse 24, the great multitude followed him, and the next word in my Bible, it says, and thronged him. What does it say in your version? Do you guys have a different version? Mine says thronged him. Anybody else? Pressed around him. Literally, the Greek has this idea of choking. Okay, suffocating him. They're pressing in so tight that there's no way he's managing or uh, he's in charge of his own direction. It's one of those crowd surfing situations. Um, A couple of summers ago, Jaden, Jenna, and Jacob, yeah, Jacob was with us. we, we ventured out to Dove Valley um, to, to watch the Denver Broncos practice. <laughs> and uh, this, was our, this was when we were first acknowledging the fact that living around the Denver area, it's hard not to be a Broncos fan. <laughs> Anyways, um, so we went out. We went out to, to see, it was their first practice of training camp. And so man, we parked way out in the fields. And eventually we got in. We stuck around for three hours in that blazing sun because we were told that the players would come and and, uh, sign things and stuff afterwards. Anyway, so we brought a little um, squishy Broncos football. And uh, we saw number 58, and we knew what line we wanted to be in. And we soon realized that being in line matters nothing. 
Okay. <laughs> so, so I parked Jenna and Jacob over here. And I put Jaden on my shoulders. And we started trying to make our way into that thing. And I tell you what, that was the most scary time of my life. <laughs> we, um, eventually, the momentum or the, the weight of the crowd was pressing in forward. And I felt like, oh man, Jaden's life is being threatened here. We need to get out of it. So we didn't even get that thing signed. But here's the thing. Being thronged by a crowd is not where you want to be. Jairus did not want to be there. Jesus did not want to be... I imagine that Jesus did not want that kind of pressing in, that suffocation. And so when you get back to this story here, man, when the crowd throngs him, this is not a good thing, especially if you're Jairus. I mean, just put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a minute. I mean, you don't want to be in those shoes for very long. You don't want your kids to be at the point of death. Nor do you want your only hope to be delayed by other people. I mean, does Jairus get anxious here? Does he get frustrated? Does he get angry? What's going on in Jairus' heart? I mean, he's being pressed on too. Do you ever feel that your pursuit of Jesus runs into barriers too? Do you ever feel that, that your pursuit of daily alone time with the Lord uh, from day to day, or even just growing in your personal relationship in general, do you ever feel like that runs into barriers or even delays or distractions? I mean, this is what's going on. There's a, there's a pressing in. When we invite Jesus to come in, don't just assume. Don't just assume that the enemy says, okay, game over. He's got a connection with Jesus. No! The enemy knows. That that's your lifeline. The enemy knows, as John 17, 3 says, that this is life eternal. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when we seek Jesus' personal audience, when we seek Jesus' time with us, there will be barriers that press, that throng, and even suffocate our ability to have that time with Him. And for Jairus, this delay was in the form of other people. And that's sad to say. A lot of times in the stories in the Gospels, there are people who want to see Jesus. Jairus is one of them. People get in the way. There's an individual named Zacchaeus. He wants to see Jesus, but there are people who get in the way. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus. He's calling out to Jesus, but there are people who are telling him to be quiet. Sometimes, in our pursuit of a relationship with Jesus, other people around us can be the greatest barriers. God forbid that we would ever be one of those people, right? Like in the story of Zacchaeus, I want to be a tree that helps people see Jesus, right? In the story of Bartimaeus, I want to be one of those who says, cheer up, good fellow. Hey, he's calling for you. In this story, I want to be one who actually crowd surfs ahead and and, and parts the waters, so to speak. But there are times when it's not just priorities and tasks and to-dos that get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. It's actually other people and even how they treat us or don't treat us. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And sometimes that delay actually isn't just frustrating for Jairus, it's fatal. Notice what happens. The story, like I said, it gets interrupted. Verses 25 to about 34. There's a story that maybe we'll get to in our next installment of this series. 
of a woman who, is ble- who has an issue of blood. But in verse 35, let's pick it up. So draw your eyes down a little bit further in the chapter. In verse 35, this frustrating experience becomes fatal. It says, While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The news comes. The hope that was welling up in Jairus' heart, that was getting tense because of the thronging crowd, is now, the bubble just bursts, right? He hears this news, and his hope is gone. His countenance falls. You can just see his shoulders sag, his jaw is open. He's not even staring at anything in particular. He's just taking this in. How could this happen? Sometimes, our pursuit of a personal relationship with God is slowed down not just by our own distractions, not just by other people and their either ill or even good intentions, but sometimes our pursuit of Jesus is slowed down by life's disappointments. Things happen in life that were never supposed to happen, and your desire to have Jesus with you is just kind of thrown in the air. Hope's unfulfilled. Even comparison to others as if... I mean, I wonder if there was a thought that crossed Jairus' mind. If only he hadn't stopped to help her. You know? Sometimes we, want, we, we feel like, oh, God is tending to other people, but He's not tending to me. God has a relationship with other people, but not to me. It can leave us feeling as if, as if our, our needs are not just off God's radar, but as if they're out of God's reach altogether. And this is something that I'm beginning to learn. uh, That a personal, one-on-one relationship with God does not always happen instantly. You know what I mean? It's not microwavable. It's not push a button and there it is. Nor is it always instantly gratifying. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, I was um, able to hang out at Mill Spring Ranch up in Wyoming. Uh, Debbie was the camp nurse. I got to be on daddy duty. And... um, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, not, not having a pastoral role there necessarily. There was another pastor who was there to speak for the evening and morning worships and stuff. But I just got to hang out. But um, there was one evening towards the end of the week where one of the camp staff, um, during one of the open recreation times, just, just walked over to me and asked me a question. Hey, Pastor Godfrey, this individual knew that, that I was a pastor. We had had some interaction in the past and stuff. And she began to ask me, um, how do you have a relationship with God? That was basically her bottom line question. Was, she was someone who grew up in the church. She was someone who loved the Lord. She was someone who, you know, was a camp staff who was leading other little children to love the Lord too. And she was beginning to realize, after having a couple of years of college under her belt, she was realizing that, you know, when, when life gets busy and I start investing my attention in other things, it's easy for God to become, you know, to take a back seat, to be on the back burner, so to speak. And so how do you overcome that? How do you actually, you know, have a relationship with God, have one-on-one meaningful connection with the Lord? And we talked through things. I shared my experience and stuff. I shared some promises that I've claimed in my own life, like Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me. I tell you what, that's God's promise to you. You think it's hard to get to know the Lord? Well, hey, He has promised to give you a heart to know Him. 
so that, that's a promise I shared with her. I also shared with her a promise from Isaiah 50, verse 4. It says, He, he wakens me morning by morning so that I can have an ear that is trained to hear. And so I shared that promise with her, and she really took hold of that, and she said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray before I go to bed tonight. I'm going to pray that God wakes me up tomorrow morning. I know the camp schedule is hard. I know that I have to be up before the kids and help them get ready and stuff, but I'm going to pray that God wakes me up tomorrow morning so I can have time with Him. So next morning when I get to breakfast, she's beaming, and she says, Pastor, God woke me up an hour early before the kids and I had some quality time in the Word. And that was beautiful to hear. God can fulfill His promises. God will fulfill His promises in our desire to seek Him, in our desire to draw near to Him. He will make the way open. But, even though that was that camp staff's experience, I am realizing that that's not always everyone's experience. When I began claiming that promise, that's what God did the very next morning. But what if things don't click? What if in your pursuit of a relationship with Jesus, things aren't snappy and instantaneous and microwavable? What if, even after you've been pursuing Jesus, things in life seem to deaden or get worse and not any better? What do you do then? What did Jairus do? What happens in our hearts is very interesting. I think uh, Jairus' experience, notice um, again in verse 35, it says, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Some things that happen when, when our relationship or pursuit of God or pursuit of that relationship runs into barriers, you know what two things start happening in our hearts? One, we start to question who Jesus is. And the second thing we question is what his heart is for. Is his heart for me? I mean, notice how the, the question comes out. Or he says, why trouble the teacher any further? There's a doubt that's placed in Jairus' mind from this well-meaning friend who brings news of his daughter's death. There's a doubt that this man that you're seeking help from is only a teacher and that's it. In other words, there's a question about who Jesus is and what he can do for you. Jairus, at the onset, he begged at his feet, she will live when you come to my house. Jairus knew Jesus was his only hope. Jesus was his daughter's healer. That's who Jairus knew Jesus to be. But when there was a delay, all of a sudden there's a question, who is this Jesus really? Is he anything more than a teacher who has good ideas for our lives? So we begin to question who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus. But the other thing we begin to question is the heart of Jesus. Why trouble the teacher any further? In other words, why bother him? Assuming that your desire for his attention is a bother. Assuming that Jesus actually doesn't want to come with assuming that Jesus has better things to do. In fact, the word there, um, the, the Greek word that's translated as trouble, it's often, tra- or not often, but it can be literally translated as to skin or flay. Okay, so this is like a, this is a painful thing, uh, like getting under your skin, that, that kind of idiom or, or imagery. And the question is, why, why should we trouble him anymore? This really isn't worth his time. And a lot of times when we're seeking a relationship with God, we run into barriers, we run into people, we run into disappointments, we'll begin to question. 
Does Jesus really want this? Does Jesus really want me? Does Jesus really want personal communion with me? What I love is that the story doesn't stop right there. Jairus doesn't just kind of turn away. But Jesus makes the first move. In verse 36, As soon as, in other words, immediately, right when Jesus heard the word that was spoken, I mean, I imagine Jesus kind of reading the heart of Jairus as he's processing the, the question and the news from this friend. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only what? Only believe. When Jesus sees that we're kind of drawing back, when Jesus sees that we're disappointed, when Jesus sees that we're questioning, man, can we really have Jesus in our lives? Can I really have personal attention and time with the Lord? Can I really know Him personally and individually? Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe. I don't know if you realize this, but fear is the antithesis of faith. Don't be afraid, only believe. The more fear you have, the less faith you have. The more faith you have, the less fear you have. Don't be afraid, only believe. Believe what? Believe who Jesus is, that He's more than just a a teacher with good ideas. Believe that He's life eternal. Believe that He is the God of your salvation. Believe also that His heart is for you. That He's not troubled, that He's not flayed, that you're not getting under His skin. In fact, in Isaiah 62, I think it is, we're told to, um, the the watchman on the wall, it's a metaphor of of people who pray and seek the Lord. We're told to not give God any rest. That's what it says. Isaiah 62, don't give Him any rest. He's not troubled by it. Believe that He wants, believe that He is your hope, believe that He wants relationship. And in fact, that command, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Only believe. Like exclusively, just believe. And what's interesting is that that could be better translated as only keep believing. Jesus recognized that Jairus had faith at the onset. And Jesus is knowing, he he knows his heart, you just need to keep pressing into that. Lean into that faith. Persevere in that faith. Jairus had faith at the beginning of the story to seek the individual attention and presence of Jesus, to keep seeking it. And so maybe you're not seeing results like that, uh, that camp staff. Um, maybe you're not seeing uh, things turn around right away. But keep claiming the promise that He'll wake you up morning by morning. Keep claiming the promise that He will give you a heart to know Him. Keep carving out alone time with the Lord. Keep opening up the heart door to the One who is already knocking on it. Keep drawing near to God, and He will draw near to you. Don't be afraid. Only keep believing. The story continues. In verse 37, Jesus moves forward. Apparently, Jairus, he follows Jesus' instruction. Okay, let's let's keep going. I'll just be only believing. In verse 37, we'll pick up the story again. Mark chapter 5, verse 37. It says, And he permitted no one to follow him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Probably what Jairus wanted from the very beginning. Okay? He just wanted Jesus. He didn't want this great throng, thronging crowd. And so, Jesus is now downsizing. He's trimming the audience, so to speak. And now there's a turning point. There's a turning point of moving towards more of a personal encounter with Jairus. So, verse 37, now he's just got Peter, James, and John. Verse 38, then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And guess what? There's more people there. <laughs> 
Verse 38, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. But Jesus is on a mission again. He wants to downsize the audience again. When he came in, he said to them, verse 39, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I love that. Jesus sees your disappointments. He sees what's dead in your life, and he sees it completely different than you and I do. Completely different. What we feel is beyond his reach is just asleep to him. And in verse 40, They ridiculed him, but... When he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him. So again, he's he's trimming the audience. Now he's just got father and mother, uh, Peter, James, and John with him. And he entered where the child was lying. And he does this, I think, not just... I mean, I think Jesus is, is emotionally sensitive. I think he knows that the family doesn't want to be a spectacle to... The, the, the crowd. I think he also, in his own humility and modesty, doesn't want to be a spectacle to other people. But I think primarily the reason why he's trimming the audience is because he only wants to be surrounded by belief. He only wants to be surrounded by faith. That's why I think earlier he tell, tells Jesus, or he tells Jairus, only keep believing. And again, it's persistent personal faith that opens up the way for personally knowing Jesus, having him in your home. But I have a question. You know, the, the other day, just a couple of weeks ago, um, the men's group that I get to be a part of, uh, we were studying this very story, and there was something that stood out to me that had never jumped out to me before. And I'll see if, if the detail kind of catches your eye too. But aside from the three disciples, when Jesus goes into the home, aside from the three disciples, according to verse 40, who does Jesus take with him? According to the verse... Okay, say it again. The mother and the... Specifically the father. And we, we know his name is Jairus. We've heard his name Jairus at the very beginning of the story. But what's really interesting is that he takes the father... Uh, how does it say it in verse 40? He took the father and the mother of the child. Now again, Mark is, is usually snappy about his narratives. But there's a shift in this narrative right here. We know that at the beginning, this man who had a great need, his child is at the point of death. This man, his name was Jairus. Right? He is mentioned by name, Jairus. But what was the other description of this man? Synagogue, synagogue official, ruler of the synagogue. Throughout the narrative, he is only labeled as the ruler of the synagogue. In fact, four times that title is mentioned as if we just can't forget that this is the ruler of the synagogue. All right. I think it's starting in verse 35, even through verse 40. You've got, uh, where is it? Uh, in verse 35, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Verse 36, he said to the ruler of the synagogue. And then down in verse 38, then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes, not the ruler of the synagogue, he takes the father. This might seem like a small detail, but I think Mark is shifting gears here. It's a small but significant shift. Something that I'm finding to be more and more true is that getting alone with Jesus forces us to get alone with who we are. Getting alone with Jesus forces us to peel away the layers of our personal identity. 
Um, let me see if I can describe this even more. I mean, really, the shift goes from his position and his title and his career and his occupation to his relationships. Do you notice that? goes from ruler of the synagogue to the father of the child. And this only happens when Jesus gets to his house. There is something about spending time alone with the Lord that makes you recognize not just who Jesus is, but who you really are. And I think this is what Mark wants us to highlight. When we encounter God, when we seek Him personally, He will reveal Himself to us, and in the process, He'll reveal our own hearts to ourselves, if we'll let Him. I think that's why David models a prayer at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Why? Because he needs to know his own heart. He doesn't know his heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. In fact, we're really good at tricking ourselves to think of ourselves differently than we really are. When we introduce ourselves to people, we, tell, we reference ourselves, or we identify ourselves in reference to what we do rather than what we're related to or who we're related to. And the, Jesus, I think, when he wants alone time with us, he also wants to just kind of filter all of that so that we and our, our identity would not just be about what we do, but who we love and who we are loved by. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God. And when he sees God, who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, you know, when he sees the glory of God, do you know what? Isaiah's first words out of his own mouth are in Isaiah 6. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, when he sees God, he also sees who he is. When we seek to know him, he'll also lead us to know ourselves. There's a self-awareness that God wants to grant us in our communion with him that I think I am often in too great haste to receive. I don't know if you're catching this, but I hope that at some point this, this, uh, this settles into our hearts. You know, in Psalm 4, verse 4, um, turn there with me really quickly. You can keep a bookmark here. Psalm 4, verse 4. I need someone to read this who has the old King James. King James, Psalm 4, verse 4. Because it says it a little bit differently in the King James that I want to catch. In the New King James, the Bible says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Does anybody have the King James for that? Psalm 4, verse 4. You got it? Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Awesome. There we go. I don't know if you got to hear that. Commune with your own heart on your bed and be still. Question. When, when you hear the words be still, do you think of another verse? Be still and know that I am God, right? When we have solitude time, when we are spending time alone with the Lord, we're, we're primarily wanting to know who God is. But apparently, there is a place for not just communing with God, but communing with your own heart. And we need to be still in order to do that. Uh, don't, don't take me to an um, you know, Eastern meditation extreme type of thing where you're just kind of mm, zeroing in and centering or whatever the case might be. No, this is biblical. 
The psalmist is telling us that we need to meditate within our own heart, to commune with our own heart on our bed. In fact, there are some Spirit of Prophecy quotes that I was reading um, that was talking to ministers specifically. It's in Gospel Workers. And he, she tells ministers and pastors, the reason why your sermons are so, so tameless and meaningless, I'm sorry, so tame and meaningless, is that you're not taking time to commune with your own heart. And then she writes in Review and Herald, she's writing to people as they're preparing to go to a camp meeting. She says, man, if there was more, if you were silent and if you communed with your own heart, then you wouldn't take your burdens and your baggage to camp meeting. In other words, you wouldn't take your, your, uh, your junk to the gathering of the brethren. Wow, apparently ministry would be more fruitful if we commune with our own hearts. And apparently, our group times of worship and, and our gatherings would be more inspiring and enthusiastic if we communed with our own hearts. This is really interesting to me, and, I, and this is something that I'm beginning to experience more and more, that when we seek to know God, and when we're willing to examine ourselves, one, our ministries will be more fruitful. And two, our gatherings will be more reviving. You know Why? Because we won't come to those gatherings to get something. We'll be coming to those gatherings to give something. Like the children of Israel, the three times a year when they were called to the feasts, God specifically tells them, don't appear before the Lord (laughs) empty-handed. How does that happen? Unless we've been receiving from God all along. That's what communion with the Lord does. And communion with our own hearts. So, When we encounter God and when we seek Him personally, He will reveal Himself to us. And He'll reveal our own hearts to ourselves. The rest of the story, man, once this happened, once once He came away with Jesus, or once Jesus got into His home and He realized who, not just who Jesus was, but who He was Himself, the rest of the story in Mark chapter 5 is is beautiful. Then He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, Arise! Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. I love that. Uh, the, the Greek word there is ekstasis. It's an ecstasy. It's meaning out of mind. In other, it's, it's the Bible's way of saying mind blown, right? It's, this is just, this is amazing. This is what happens when we allow Jesus to come in. And this is what happens when we let Jesus peel away the layers of who we are, when we do. So, appeal, takeaway. How, how, how do we, what are our takeaways as we, as we look at this story and we see ourselves in this? Let me just make two simple, simple appeals. When your pursuit of a relationship with Jesus runs into a delay or disappointment, don't be afraid. Only keep believing. In other words, don't say, oh, I tried that. That's just for someone else. That's just for the pastor. That's just for the elders. That's just for people who, you know, uh, who are out there. Now, having a relationship with God isn't really something for... No, no, don't be afraid. Only keep believing. Keep believing that He is who your heart longs for. Uh, he wants to have a relationship with you. Keep seeking. Keep opening the heart door morning by morning. And the second appeal is this. So not, not just don't be afraid and keep believing, but, but when we pursue personal relationship with Jesus, I appeal to you. Be willing to know Him and to let Him help you know yourself. 
to, lead, to, to let Him lead you to know yourself, to let Him peel away the layers of who we think we are, to let Him be the one to determine what truly defines us, not just what we do, but who we are and who we are in relationship with. Let that be the primary definition of our significance and our worth and our identity. So how many of you would say, yeah, you know, I, I want to I keep pressing in. I, I want to have personal time with the Lord. How many of you would, would want to say, yeah, that's, that, that's the experience I want. Yeah, amen. And I, again, appeal to you, as you do, yes, know Him and allow Him to let you know yourself. Today as we close, uh, we're just going to sing a song of response. It may be familiar to some of us, um, but it's catchy enough. So I'll invite the song team with us, or to join me here. We're going to sing a song, Who You Say I Am. Would you stand with us as we sing together, Who You Say I Am.